Good morning. My name is Jeremiah. I am the director of Youth and Young Adults Ministries here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Madeline and I have been here for six months now, and we come here with such gratitude for the ways that this body has loved us and cared for us these six months. So thank you. Um, if we haven't met, I would love to meet you after the service. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them uh, this morning to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 10 through 25. And let's read this together. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your, your, your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there. For all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there. For fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us because he loves us, so let's pray. Lord God, this morning, would you speak? Lord, would you speak to us through your word, not because we deserve it, but because of the great abundance of your steadfast love towards us, Lord, because you, you long to be heard by us, Lord. So would you stir in us a longing to hear? Would you open up our ears? Would you open up our eyes to hear and to see the beauty and the wonder of your steadfast love and your amazing grace this morning? Lord God, may the 
words of my mouth this morning and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. God, our rock and our redeemer, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. In my short time here in Tennessee, I've discovered that you can't drive very far around this area without seeing a few billboards that say, see Rock City. Little theologians, you know what I'm talking about? Perhaps some of you have, have been to Rock City. It's a pretty cool place, right? Maybe you've stood at Lover's Leap and seen the beautiful vista that shows you seven states. Maybe you've experienced the enchantment of the Fairyland Caverns or Mother Goose Village. Wherever you go in Tennessee, and I've discovered this, you'll see signs that invite you to come. Come and see Rock City. These signs communicate something to us. All signs do, right? Sign, signs do at least two things for us. First, a sign, points, a sign points to something greater than itself. And second, a sign asks us a question. What is it that you see? In the church, we have signs. We call them sacraments. We take communion. We celebrate baptism. And these are signs that are meant to point to something greater than just a, a physical sprinkling or washing or eating and drinking. They're, they're pointing to something greater than themselves, a deeper, more spiritual reality of what happens when the Holy Spirit does a work in us. Foster's belief makes us part of his body, brings us together in love. And each time we celebrate one of those signs as God's church, we're being asked again, do you believe the deeper meaning here? What is it that you see in baptism, in the Lord's Supper? And all the while, these signs are stirring in us a longing and affection for the God of love. And so it is uh, with a, a billboard for Rock City. Those billboards point to something greater than themselves. They ask us questions. Oh, you've seen rocks. But have you seen Rock City? You haven't seen rocks until you've seen Rock City. And all the while, the signs beckon to us to come. Come closer. Come and see. Now, here's the thing. We spend most of our lives ignoring the signs around us. Which is a good thing because we'd probably be broke if we didn't. But in Isaiah chapter 7, in God's word this morning, God tells us that the birth of Emmanuel, a child, is a sign, and it's a sign that we cannot ignore. So today we're going we're gonna to ask three things. Number one, why does God offer a sign? Number two, what is it that the sign is pointing to? And number three, what is it that we must see? Because the gospel says this sign changes everything about the way we look at Christmas. So let's get going. Number one, why does God offer a sign? 
And if you want to know why God offers a sign, you need to know a little bit about King Ahaz. You need some context for this passage this morning. You have to understand that King Ahaz rules over a fractured half-kingdom. His forefather, King Rehoboam, had split the kingdom of Israel in two. The ten northern tribes rebelled and they left what uh, became the southern kingdom or the land of Judah. And they formed their own kingdom and they called themselves the, the land of Israel. And so you've got the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And the lands were at war on and off from that point on. Now Ahaz is the rightful king in Jerusalem. He's the rightful king of Judah. He's sitting on the throne of his forefather, King David. He's a member of the house of David, but he's actually a pretty wicked guy. We know um, from the accounts in scripture that he allowed idolatry to run rampant in the land. He sacrificed one of his children to a false god. And now, here in the book of Isaiah, his tiny kingdom of Judah is under threat. You see, what had happened is this northern kingdom of Israel had teamed up with Syria. And they were seeking to invade Judah. You see, the, the major empire of the time, Assyria, was knocking on their doorstep. And so all of these smaller kingdoms were jockeying for power, jockeying for control, and seeking to present a united front against this greater empire. They thought they had a better chance of survival that way. And so, these two kingdoms, the Syrians and the Israelites, they sought to fight King Ahaz and force him into that alliance. But if you know anything about how God dealt with the kings of Israel and Judah, you know that their strength was never supposed to be in their alliances or in their horses or chariots or in their vast armies. Their strength, always and only, came from their trust in God. Ahaz is the true king, and he's the heir of the true promises of God. But if you look at the context of our passage right here in Isaiah chapter 7, if you look at verses 1 through 9, which comes before our passage, you see what his problem is. Here come the kings of Syria and of Israel, which in these verses is referred to as Ephraim. It's one of the ten tribes. In verse 2, we learn that Ahaz was straight up shook by this. He was afraid. God tells Ahaz in verse 9, he says, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. There's an intentional wordplay there. Your faith, Ahaz, is only as strong as the object in which you place your faith. And if you place your faith, any of us, on the wrong foundation, when that foundation shakes, we will shake as well. God is seeking to encourage Ahaz and bring him to repentance, bring him to true trust in the Lord of heaven and earth. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. So when you look at, at this text beginning in verse 10, you see that God offers Ahaz a sign. He's saying, Ahaz, give me an opportunity to show you that I'll keep my promises, to show you my faithfulness. Swing for the fences. Let it be as deep as the grave or as high as heaven. But Ahaz rejects the sign. And he does it in this sort of um, pious, uh, pious way. He says, I will not put the Lord to the test. 
You ever get annoyed when someone tries to give you a free, unearned gift? That's just me. That, that's what's happening with Ahaz here. He doesn't want to place his trust in the Lord or be in his debt. The Lord tells Ahaz to ask him for a sign, but Ahaz's heart is hard. So what's his deal? Where are your eyes, Ahaz? What are you looking at? What is it that you're seeing? He's looking to the empire on the horizon. He's looking to the Assyrians. And we know from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, which give us uh, different and, and detailed accounts about his reign, we know that he actually brought them tribute at Damascus. Not only that, but he was so impressed by their false worship that he'd had, he had a replica of the Damascus altar built and put in the temple of the living God to use for worship in Jerusalem. Ahaz was a wicked, hard-hearted, off-the-rails king. He didn't want to see God's sign. There was an elaborate marketing prank this fall. Some of you may have seen or heard of it. A former Giorgio Armani storefront in Santa Monica, California was converted into a hip new store with the name Palessi emblazoned across the front. It was going to signal the debut of a new shoe brand named after and designed by the legendary Italian designer Bruno Palessi. Mm -hmm. Socialites and Instagram influencers were invited to the launch party to buy and sample these brand new shoes on the cutting edge of the LA fashion scene. Pairs were priced in the hundreds, 200, 400, 600, and the thousands of dollars. And the people were enthralled and they spent and they spent. I have some quotes from the event. I would pay $400, $500. People are gonna be like, where did you get those? Palessi is just such high quality, high fashion. It's definitely taking your shoe game to the next level. There was only one problem. The whole thing was a fake. There is no such designer by the name of Bruno Palessi. But perhaps you've heard of his long lost cousin, Pay Lessi. That's right, Payless Shoe Source. This whole event was a marketing prank from the nationwide discount shoe retailer. They wanted to prove a point about the quality of their product, the quality of their shoes. They wanted to bring in more customers. But along the way, they proved a point about us as well, did they not? As one consumer behavioral consultant said, Consumers are not capable of discerning the quality and value of the things that they buy. Ouch. Translation. We often see only what we want to see. Ahaz doesn't see God's sign in his lifetime because his heart is hard. But that's exactly why he needs it. And like Ahaz, our hearts are easily hardened towards the Lord. That's why God is offering us this sign of Emmanuel. That's why. Which brings us to our, our second question. What is the sign pointing to? We know that this sign is, is pointing to the coming of a child, the birth of a child who will be called Emmanuel. But what child is this? Some scholars 
think the child in question is born in Isaiah chapter 8. We get the birth of a child there. But there's some problems with that theory. Others think that the child is the son of King Ahaz, the soon-to-be king of Judah, King Hezekiah, who was a man who, who sought to, in many ways, be faithful to the Lord. Others think that this passage had nothing to say to King Ahaz and was only a distant prophecy meant to be fulfilled in Christ alone. I believe, uh, along with many others, that some of what's happening here in Isaiah chapter 7 is for Ahaz, but some of it is for us as well. Some of it is fulfilled exclusively in Christ. It's clear from the text that some of this prophecy isn't just intended for Ahaz and his time. It's more universal in scope. Well, how do we know that? Here's, here's how. Because some of these verses use the word you in the singular. God's just speaking to Ahaz. And in some of them, God is speaking in the plural to a group of people as if he's using the word y'all. And when he does that, we see it here. He's addressing the house of David. If you have a, a Bible here this morning, it's very likely there's a footnote that will tell you which is which when he's using which word. But I'll help you as well. Do you see it there in verses 13 and 14? He's, the Lord is saying to Ahaz, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for y'all to weary men, that y'all are wearying my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give y'all a sign. He's addressing all the Davidic kings, the entire house of David. And what is this sign for them? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This prophecy goes back to the promise God had made to King David long ago. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God hasn't broken that promise. King Ahaz thus far is living proof. And God's not going to break that promise in spite of the idolatry and the unfaithfulness. He's been faithful. He's going to be faithful. A deliverer is coming to redeem his people. But that's not all that our passage says this morning. We'll come back to that. But in the meantime, if you look at verses 16 and 17, we see the singular form of the word you. And we get a picture there in verses 16 and 17 of deliverance from the kings of Syria and Israel. Their land will soon be deserted. God is indeed going to use the Assyrian Empire to come in and vanquish them. But we also get a picture of an even greater judgment as well. And Dan told us about this last week. You remember? He talked about a righteous branch coming from the stump of Jesse. When Ahaz makes his alliance with the empire of Assyria and puts his trust in the Assyrians rather than in the Lord his God, the throne of David becomes nothing more than a stump. Oh, sure, they, the Assyrians rolled up and, and they took care of business. But surprise, surprise, instead of coming and strengthening Ahaz, Scripture tells us that they afflicted and subjugated him. Every Davidic king after Ahaz will be a puppet king, more or less subject to the whims of the empires around them. 
whether it's the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians, the Greeks or the Romans. Emmanuel, this cosmic promised savior, whenever he arrives, he's going to be born into poverty. He's going to suffer under the consequences of Ahaz's decisions. He's going to eat curds and honey, which isn't so much a sign of blessing as it's a sign that natural resources have become so abundant because there's so few people left to enjoy them. There's nobody in line at Walmart on Black Friday. Disturbingly so. Because they've all been carried off into exile. They've all been slain. Everyone's going to have their own cow and two sheep. In verse 20, God refers to the king of Assyria as a razor who will bring shame upon the people that Ahaz governs. It's total nakedness and desolation, total loss of honor. That phrase about shaving the hair of the feet is a euphemism for something else. Just as the land will be laid waste and laid bare, so there will be a laying bare of these people who placed their trust and their hope in false gods that cannot save because of the hardness of their hearts. Where there used to be vines that yielded fruit, there will be briars and thorns. You'll walk through the countryside with a bow and arrow and the same fear that someone today might walk through a dark alley. This is what sin does to us. This is the place where sin puts us. It takes our stewardship of good things and we see briars and thorns. Ahaz sought riches apart from the riches that God provides, and he got poverty. He sought honor apart from the honor that God provides, and he got nakedness and shame. He sought safety and security from the nations around him apart from the safety and security that God provides. And he got nations settled in his backyard and danger all around. That was the fruit of his idolatry. And the desires that Ahaz had for wealth for honor and reputation, for safety and security. Are they so different from the desires that we pursue on a daily basis? What riches do we seek? What honor do we pursue? Where do we find our safety and security? Where do we quench our deepest longings? Where do we numb our pain? Word of God challenges us when we take a good thing and make that thing more important than trusting in God. Why? Because that's, that's idolatry. The coming of Christ at Christmas reminds us that those things can't save. They make lousy gods and they harden our hearts. Is it the fleeting or ever diminishing pursuit of pleasure? For some of us, maybe it's a, a life inflated with wealth so that we're shielded from relying on God day by day. What about our reputation, our grades, or our kids' grades? Are there areas in our lives where we're finding our identity and our hope apart from the gospel alone? We can't find salvation by running away from God and toward those things. The answer that God gives for the hardness of our hearts is a softening work of his love and his grace. It's by grace that we're saved. It's by grace that we are sustained. Little theologians, you still with us? Still with me this morning? I want to <clears throat> give you a, a little tip. Some of you um, are probably helping your parents uh, with some baking as the holidays approach. 
You're going to be doing some work in the kitchen, making cakes and cookies. It's going to be wonderful and glorious. Here's, here's, a, here's a little tip for you. If you're, if you're baking anything that needs any sort of rise, any sort of volume and texture, you have to use butter that's at room temperature. Yeah. Why is that? Well, <clears throat> we know that actually when, when butter is cold and hard or when it's just melted, it, it doesn't mix as well with sugar. When you use butter that's at room temperature, when it's been softened, and then you mix that butter with sugar, the sugar, those, those sugar crystals, those tiny little crystals, as they mix, they actually gouge the butter. They mar it and make, leave marks in it, and, and they create little air pockets that helps everything mix together better. Makes for a wonderful taste and texture in your cakes and cookies. I know, it's amazing. Um, <clears throat> you're welcome. <laughs> Please don't let that be the only thing you take notes on this morning. Here, here's the point. If you use cold butter or melted butter, that might be good for, for certain pastries. But by and large, if you're using cold, hard butter, you're not making cookies or cakes anymore. You're making pancakes. Our hearts need softening like that. Our hearts need to be gougeable, vulnerable. How else will grace enter in? In Ahaz's day, God softened the hearts of his people, in large part through his judgment and his wrath. But there's also this promise of Emmanuel that God is going to soften the hearts of his people by his love, his mercy, his grace as well. So let this Christmas be a time for you to soften your butter and to let God soften your hearts. Brings us to our final question. What is it that we must see in this sign of Emmanuel. Centuries after King Ahaz, the gospel writer Matthew tells us about an ordinary man named Joseph. He lived in poverty. He lived under the oppression of Roman rule and of a puppet king, but Matthew opens his gospel with a genealogy. And that genealogy crescendos in this truth that this man, Joseph, was from the line of David. It's repeated multiple times. And Joseph, by chance, or maybe not by chance, was betrothed to an ordinary woman named Mary who was found to be with child. Miraculously so. And so an angel came to Joseph and, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet to Ahaz, Joseph's forefather. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That word, Emmanuel, <clears throat> it's actually uh, three words in, in Hebrew. It's a combination of these three words. Im, which means with, Anu, which means us, and El, which is the Hebrew word for God. Im, Anu, El. 
Emmanuel, God with us. This fall, our youth looked at the book of Exodus. And we looked at this wonderful passage in Exodus 3 where God is commissioning Moses to go before Pharaoh and to proclaim what is going to be good news, that God has heard the cries of his people, that he's going to set them free. And to our students in here, do you remember one of Moses' questions? The first thing he asked was, Lord, who am I that I should go before Pharaoh? You remember what God said? God didn't tell Moses who he was. God said, Moses, I will be with you. And amazingly, after the Lord is faithful, brings his people out of Egypt, even after they sin a great and horrendous sin, Moses takes the role of intercessor and he goes before the Lord and he says, Lord, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? How, how, how's anyone going to know that you've laid your favor upon us? Is it not in your going with us? Is it not in your Emmanueling with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Yes. So God, in his mercy and his grace, dwells among his people. His presence among his people is what the entire story is pointing to throughout the Old and New Testaments. It's about God coming and being with us, about the restoration of a relationship that was lost in the garden. But God, in his ferocious love and grace, hasn't given up on. We still suffer under a reality that was passed down from Adam in the very beginning. But Emmanuel comes at Christmas, the offspring of the woman, to bruise the head of that wicked serpent. And that's good news. So we can confess that God, in his perfect mercy and justice, sent the Son to assume the nature in which the disobedience had been committed and bear in himself the punishment of our sins in order that he might pour out his goodness and mercy on us. That's God and sinners reconciled. And that reconciliation doesn't happen because of any work that you or I can do. The Christian faith is not just that we can live a good moral life and get right with God. It's not just about going to church. The gospel gives us this hard but needed truth that you are not your own redeemer. It's this massive billboard with the word Emmanuel on it that says you can't atone for your own sin, but there is one who can. Self-righteousness can harden our hearts just as much as any vice. We need a savior. We don't receive God's favor through our works as if any of us could come in here this morning and earn it. We receive it by his grace. Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the good news of the gospel. There's nothing you can do but rest in the wonder of his deliverance for you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you.
that should stir something in all of us this morning. He loves you. Dan Steer spoke with us last week about the Grand Canyon. I, like many of you, I'm sure, have never been to the Grand Canyon, but I desperately want to go. You know why? Because like, there's this, there's this weird thing that happens when you talk to someone who's been to the Grand Canyon. They kind of, like, their, their eyes kind of get far off as if they're transported to a different place. And, and you hear them say something like, you just have to go. You just have to see it for yourself. It's the only place you can go that doesn't actually disappoint when you see it up close. Do we talk about God like that? This good news about Emmanuel, God dwelling with us, it means that we gather here to worship a God who is present in this room this morning. He came to us at Christmas, and he is with us still by his Holy Spirit, and he's coming again. It's glorious. Let us be a people who say to a, a broken and longing world, you just have to meet him. You just have to get this, you just have to get to know this God who has loved me so lavishly. You just have to see him up close. He's never, never let me down. He's my fountain of joy and the rest for my soul. See, God's presence is everything. His withness is what empowers our witness. And he is with us, but we have to open our eyes to see him first. See, this sign of Emmanuel, it wasn't a sign for the elites. You see a billboard uh, for Rock City, and it's got a polished look. It's got a snappy slogan. It's not meant for everyone. It's meant for tourists with disposable incomes. Come and see, and we'll charge you for it. But Christ's birth, there's no diss on Rock City. Christ's birth happens in an entirely different way. Uh, it certainly moved the elites and those in power. Do you realize that God moved the entire vast machine of the Roman Empire to get a small-town unborn infant with small-town parents to the small town of Bethlehem, the birthplace of David? But Rome missed it. Caesar missed it. Herod missed it. The priests and the scribes and the very religious, the ones who had their lives figured out and their 401ks in order, they missed it. As will any of us who think that we can see God for any reason other than his sheer, loving, redeeming, freely given grace. We spend so much time trying to pretend like we've got it all together over the holidays. Stop. I don't want you to miss seeing the best gift of all. You know who saw the sign? A faithful old couple that wanted children. An impoverished suddenly scandal-ridden young woman, a simple carpenter, some shepherds who spent most of their time hiking around the hill country and probably smelled like it, wise men who knew their smallness amid the vastness of the stars, an old man with one foot in eternity who trusted the Lord's promise, and an old widow who had spent 
decades in God's house waiting on the Lord for an answered prayer. You know what they all had in common? What all these people had in common? They were patiently, faithfully, trustingly, longingly seeking to see the arrival of God. And they did. They did. Maybe you're thankful in this season. There's a lot to celebrate. Maybe you've seen God work in mighty ways this year. Maybe you're celebrating the milestones and victories of life, the births and the weddings and the promotions that God blessed us with this year. And that's good. But maybe you're struggling. Maybe you feel gripped by sin and you're desperately longing for God's deliverance. Maybe you're doubting. It feels like you're still waiting for the promises of God to come together and make sense. Maybe you're sick and you long for healing. Maybe you're grieving. Maybe there's an empty chair at the table this Christmas and you come this morning with tears and and a fear about facing this season more alone than you were last year. How how do we face that? How How do any of us face that? Praise God, scripture doesn't give us a logic, an argument, a cliche, to answer that question. It gives us him. We get him. And we know that Jesus Christ comes as a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. He's a comforter, a shepherd, a deliverer, a redeemer, a lover. And in him, we see God's might, his peace, his comfort, his joy, his love wrapped up in flesh and bone for us. God, in his infinite grace, took flesh and bone and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, the God who is with us. What is it that we must see? We must see and believe and find our ultimate hope and joy and rest and comfort in his presence. He is the one who was pleased as man with men to dwell. He is Jesus, our Emmanuel. So come and see him. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, beloved God, would you open our eyes to see and to delight and to rejoice that you're here, that at Christmas you have come and you've given us a hope that can never be put to shame. Lord, you love us so beautifully. God, help us this morning, open our eyes this morning to see this sign and to rejoice and wonder in your love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.